Remix Podcast. This is episode number seven, and I'm your host, Joanna. And this is Jennifer, and we're going to be talking about remixes. So I just want to start off with the definition of remix, according to Noble Langshear. So they stated that a remix is taking cultural artifacts and combining them and manipulating them into new kinds of creative blends. They quoted another author named Lessing in the first page that culture as a whole is a remix. So, Joanna, I'm pretty sure you had your own definition of a remix before the reading. So can you give us your own definition in regards to this topic? Sure. And I think that um, the definition was quite different from the reading, obviously. But um, before this reading, I generally attributed the word remix to only music. So today, I think it's safe to say we have all heard some form of music remix. And remix in that context refers to blending or sampling materials from different sources. So for instance, the reading discussed the Danger Mouse's Great Album, which mixed samples of instrumental tracks from the Beatles' White Album with a rapper Jay-Z's Black Album. There are many examples of this in music today, ranging from hip-hop to country music and even classical music. Moving forward toward the digital age, remixing extends to other forms of media. Reading this was an eye-opening experience because I never really thought of remixing in other areas of digital technology, such as images, TV, blogs, literary works, and so on. But I think it's clear that nowadays it seems like the word original doesn't really exist or apply anymore. Everything in some way is an extension of pre-existing work. So um, adding on to this, Jennifer, how do you think remix is a part of culture and society? So on page 12, Noble and Langshire made this really good observation. They stated that we participate in remixing whenever we discuss movie and books. We take the creator's creativity and then add it into our own thoughts and perspectives. Doing this helps to extend our ideas, connect relationships, and it pushes us to evaluate what we just saw. So every time we read and look something and then critique it or praise it, we're producing remixes. This is how our culture um, ultimately progresses. So apparently there are a lot of examples of remixes, like photoshopping, music remixes, machinima, anime music, and so on and so forth. So um, Joanna, could you give us like examples and elaborate on these different kinds of remixes? Sure. So I'll start with uh, Photoshop. So this is uh, simply editing images. There are several free online programs available for this, such as Adobe Photoshop and GIMP. There are also plenty of available DIY videos and online training resources that teach um, the everyday average person to do this. So for example, if we want to relate this to the class, we're currently using GIMP software to manipulate images by blending multiple images to create a single new image. And um, we've done this uh, quite a bit of times for our image challenges. So in terms of music remix, um, I think that's the most self-evident one. This can be done by splicing, blending, sampling different tracks to create new tracks. In the past, you would need to use, you know, sort of like those turntables and mixers, which was not meant for um, everyone because everyone didn't have access to it. But now we see many different software programs available that can do this for you. Again, I will assume we have all heard um, a remix song before. But if not, um, I would suggest you definitely check out DJ Mouse's remix that I mentioned earlier. So Machinima, um, this one is new to me. I've never really heard of it. It refers to the process by which fans use video game animation engines to create movies. 
So it is a hybridization of video games and video editing techniques. I have never seen a full movie version of this, but I have noticed some cartoons that use this process, such as um, different versions of the Transformers. Uh, creating this involves telling the story using tools, elements, and resources found within the game engine, along with resources such as characters and character movement ranges, settings, lightings, and game world physics that are available within the game. So, anime music videos. Uh, that is a form of distinct branch of fan music with video clips. So, their visual resources are clips of anime animated Japanese cartoons taken from anime movies or television series. And they are produced by the AMV creators themselves. AMV can simply can also simply be a celebration of anime itself, so it can be set to a favorite song. So an example of this currently is The Dragon Prince, which is actually available on YouTube if you're interested. And the actual movie is available on Netflix. And anyone interested in more information about this can check out the AMV.org website. So Ninja is a storytelling media or Japanese comic. Again, this is something that I learned about. This was new to me, and I thought it was quite interesting. So if anyone is interested in this, they can um, take a look at the website, um, deviantart.com. And so as far as TV and movies, I think we're all familiar with this part. It's generally taking elements of previous work, whether it's been a previous movie, blog, TV show, literature, and even a song and recreating it or incorporating those elements in new work. So Ferguson in the video that we watched regarding remix pointed out several good examples of this ranging from George Lucas' Star Wars to Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. More recently we saw this with the Avenger films and also the famous uh, Fifty Shades of Grey that was based on that was a film based on a novel. So those are really good points that you brought up, especially with the um... It seems like everybody is involved in remixes, directors such as the director for Star Wars and, and of course, Quentin Tarantino. It was really cool seeing the video where they made the side-to-side side, side side comparisons, like the old-school movies that later on influenced these big movies such as Star Wars. And then you have, like, you know, the so-called little people who are making their own little remixes of the anime shows and the TV shows that inspired them. So I think those are really good points. And it's interesting to see that everybody on all levels are indeed um, involved in remixing. Right. And I think it was interesting that we learned about this because oftentimes when you're looking at these films, you're not really really noticing those techniques are being used. So I think it was great that we learned to um, be able to identify that. So moving on, uh, Jennifer, how do you think remix affect us? So remixes basically reinforce literacies, and literacies are socially recognized ways of generating and, communi and communicating meaningful content through encoded text within participation. So on page 12, page 28, sorry, um, Noble last year said that encoding means written or spoken words that can be retrieved and worked on later on in the absence of the creator. So this podcast is an example. We are making our words available in a podcast that many people will have access to and be able to retrieve at any time to discuss our ideas. This would help bring more active participation and a deeper understanding and engagement of this week's topic. Right, and I think that brings us right into the um, subject of critical media literacy. So I'll talk a little bit about that um, and just give a brief definition of what exactly that is. 
So critical media literacy is a pedagogical approach to media literacy education that is an extension of print literacy. It is important to both students and educators and calls for advocacy to incorporate a broad range of literacy practices that relates to consumption and production of media as part of a mandated curriculum. It blends cultural theory, new media literacy, and critical pedagogy and views it as a political act. So all of this kind of entails consuming media and being able to identify sources, source background, political or economic issues, identifying issues of power, social context, um, identifying purpose, perception versus reality, asking informed questions and analyzing what we see. Also making conscientious decisions about media consumption. So something that I thought really reflects this idea really well was on page 129 in the um, middle at the bottom where it gives a direct quote that I'll read. Given the pervasiveness and influence of media in our daily lives, the information, the informal public pedagogies of popular news and entertainment media may be surpassing the formal public pedagogies of schooling and post-secondary education in terms of where and how we form citizens. The need to strengthen public education's responsibility to prepare people to participate in a democratic public sphere has really been so urgent. Educators must model and offer rigorous media critique and opportunities for media production not only in media literacy classes, but across the curriculum and at the school level and beyond. And so I think this is particularly important for a minority youth population now that we have seen an increase in new media, news media coverages surrounding issues of racism or um, economic inequality. So in response to this, I think, um, as the readers outline, we need to really address this by equipping students with the skills to quote-unquote, read news media critically while also being um, conscientious about where they go to consume media. Exactly. So CML, because of it encompasses a lot of things and it pushes people to think about what they're seeing and hearing, it has its usefulness in the classroom. However, there are some drawbacks to it. So we're going to talk about the benefits benefits first. So the good thing about CML, it advocates for people to be actively participating in digital media. However, that kind, that is a bit hard to do because there is an in-betweenness that CML commands, like such as being an active participant, but also a distant, withdrawn, unaffected observer at the same time. And it becomes an issue because if you're too involved, you don't get to see the big picture because you're so focused on the details. But if you're too distant and you're not really doing anything, then you're not really advocating and you're not really participating. And like you said, um, this is this this is an outlet for people to um, advocate for things, especially for political and social issues. And a lot of the things that we've read so far, like from Noble and Lashnir and from Buckingham and so on and so forth, they made a point that an educated public can make educated opinions, and they have to act on it to enhance democracy and equality in our society. Right, and I'm, uh, I'm actually glad that you mentioned the um, Afghan and Buckingham readings because I think they both um, kind of alluded and addressed the ideas of remixing also in their readings. You know, Afghan kind of um, alluded to this when he talked about the, um, when he referenced Marjorie Gar- Garber, when she actually said that, you know, all of this work has to relate to some kind of old or uh, old literary work, you know? So I think, um, you know, I appreciate that you addressed that. So um, 
moving on with CML, they were also saying that um, that rip, rap and hip hop kind of coincides with CML. And they, um, the author gave like really good examples of how we can learn from rap and hip hop. So they stated that rap groups like Pu- Public Enemy challenged mainstream perceptions of African-Americans and they brought a lot of attention to racism and police brutality. Um, they, um, they tried to fight these unbalanced representation that the media was giving out through like fast delivery of lyrics, sampling of different sounds in order to spread their critical messages to the youth. Right, that's a really good point. And adding on to that, I just want to um, make some suggestions or kind of um, put out there some of the ways we can think of incorporating rap and hip hop music in the classroom as critical media literacies. So some of the ways we can do that is by getting students' perspectives on curriculum and innovating ways of learning, um, based learning on students' social and cultural experiences. Teachers should also understand why this genre of music is of interest to students. Teachers should guide and engage students in identifying political messages and critically analyze them with their own experience. And also lastly, um, comparing music themes to literary works, um, identifying forms of remixing to make connections with their own personal lives. I totally agree because now we're becoming such a visual society that we're stepping away from like written text. So we're not really focusing on I mean, we are still focusing on um, pieces of literature, however, because we're so visual, it's very important to not ignore like movies and music and stuff like that. So that brings to our next topic about the video, Everything is a Remix. So Joanne, uh, I just want to get your perspective of how you think movies and music influence future works. Right, so as I mentioned earlier, um, this video was great, I just want to point out, and the video also brought me back to um, some of our previous readings. Um, it brought me back to the Ancon reading in particular and the Buckingham reading. So after watching this video, I related the themes to the Ancon reading. In the Afghan reading, as I mentioned earlier, um, Marjorie Garber, the Harvard scholar, stated that everything new and successful incorporated elements of old literary work. And also Buckingham mentioned this in his reading when he um, discussed this in his work related to Media 2.0, where he uh, stated that only 0.16% actually upload material on YouTube. And much of what they upload is, of course, pirated clips from commercial media. So it's not as though people are creating new content. Everything is kind of recycled and borrowed from other ideas. So the key piece here is that the producers create based on foundation work that also allows the consumer to draw from his or her own experience to construct meaning. So that brings in the question of copyrights and patents, correct? Right, right. So so with copyrights, it was interesting to learn that what the meanings of copyright and patents actually are, because I think in this very market-driven society, we have kind of forgotten what their purposes are. So copyrights, they're pretty much an act for the encouragement of learning, and patents are an act for the progression of the useful arts. And basically, copyrights and patents were put in place. So people who had an idea and they want to make like a product or some sort of invention you know, they have some sort of ownership to it and they can make a profit. However, copyrights are good until the person the person is alive and then 70 years after they're deceased. By then, it becomes public domain. By making it, like, for the public, people could actually, um, whoever's inspired by this product or this idea, they could actually work on it to improve. So we had examples like Thomas Edison, who um, he didn't exactly 
invent the light bulb, but he um, improved the light bulb by changing the material of the filaments. So Right, so he just built on previous work, as they mentioned. Right. Yes, correct. So Right, and that brings us um, on to the next topic where uh, we need to discuss intellectual property, which stems from copyrights and patents. And I think, um, well, let me just first address what intellectual property is. So it was first introduced to protect ideas, to include them as a form of property. And I think the problem with intellectual property is that the act itself um, sort of counteracts its initial intent. It was intended to promote and create incentives for people to create, but instead people um, such as trolling people who exploit this concept and find loopholes in order to sue and make a profit from it. So that kind of stifles the process of creativity and inhibits people from creating. So how do you think lawful lawsuits can stifle learning and creativity? Well, see, now everybody's afraid to step on someone's toes because, um, you know, God forbid they want to come out with like an idea. And let's say somebody else already came with the idea at the same time or prior. Um, the video, video made a good point about Isaac Newton was not the only person that to invent calculus. There was another uh, mathematician by the name of Gottlieb who also invented calculus around the same time. So it's very interesting to note that. And a lot of these lawsuits are pretty much hypocritical because then we have Steve Jobs who basically um, copied off um, other people's work to make his computers more efficient. But then again, he's suing Android for having the same features. Disney is notorious for um, using old fairy tales, folklores, and legends from many different cultures to use as a basis for their films. But Disney's now trying to extend copyrights because they don't want people to work on their old films. So people are being sued for trying to prove a product and for coming up right. with creative solutions. Right, right. Uh, well, Jennifer, thank you for your lasting comments. I think uh, we've addressed them really good points in this podcast and I hope that this podcast was informative and helpful to our audience and I just want to thank everyone for listening and for those of you who may have any questions or feedback please uh, feel free to add that on voice thread thank you for your time thank you Bye. bye